Are we ready to rage? We are ready. We are ready to rage. I'm Sandy Scanlon. And I'm Ashley McCoy. And we have Ian Richardson on the pod as our engineer today. You might hear him chiming in. You might not, but he's here. Hello. Say it for the people in the back, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are pretty much going to dive right into it today because we have a jam patch episode we are so excited we've been wanting to do this probably for a year right we've been talking about this this episode will be just such an interesting case study on the true end of an era that as like a uh, older gen z and like a young millennial have been able to watch be created and then die yeah we have so many thoughts we have a lot of analytical components business components controversies you know we're gonna drop the tea we are going to kick it off by talking about Girl boss culture. Ashley, do you want to explain what girl boss means? Yes. I feel like when I say girl boss, half of you or probably the majority of you are going to be like, oh my God, ew, you're not saying that for real, are you? That's what uh, I'm saying in my head. <laughs> I know, but girl boss was coined by, like, the term girl boss was coined by Sophia Amoruso in her 2014 book, Hashtag Girl Boss. And I felt like it was better to look at Urban Dictionary for this to get some true opinions and some true facts about the definition of girl boss. You're a genius. (laughs) Thank you so much. I feel like Kanye. (laughs) (laughs) So it can be a verb or a noun to use Mm -hmm. something or someone to appear as a feminist idol or inspiration for a profit. It can also be like a noun to be someone who is a woman who is in business, who seems like a powerhouse of a woman. Yeah. So a listener might say, Ashley, that doesn't sound bad. Do you want to explain why it's bad? (laughs) I feel like if you just want to listen to this part and get like the crux, it really is just like girl boss at first was like supposed to be a feminist i'm a female i'm a girl and i work in business or it's used a lot for entrepreneurs female entrepreneurs and it's supposed to be like a feminist saying but a lot of the people who started using this term really like used it as a blanket term to just show all their successes and make it seem like I'm a girl boss. Here's what I did to become successful. And this is, it's, it seems so easy. And if I can do it, you can do it. But then that kind of became a soft way to bully other women. Mm-hmm, for sure. The moment it clicked for me that it was super weird. I remember this is around the time that girl boss was like popular. I want to say 2016, maybe 2017. I was visiting my sister's office and they had like um, staged cubicles. And the men's ones were normal. And there was one girl one and it was all like, girl boss, you can do it. Work for it. All these corny sayings. And I think she was like, oh, I hate this. And it kind of clicked with me. Like, by, if you're a boss, you just say that you're a boss and to constantly point out the girl part, not even women, not lady, like girl is like minimizing when you're an adult. Um, it's just pointing out that 
it's like counterproductive, right? Because you're like, I'm putting in, I'm doing it. I'm an entrepreneur, but you still have girl in there. Not that the world girl is inherently bad, but just to say girl boss, girl boss, it's like stupid. It's like con it's like almost putting yourself out there as less than when you compare it to just the world word boss. Like you're like, I have to try harder. I have to have a brand. I can't just do it. And the other thing is too, like it's wannabe white feminism for a lot of women that are still in the keep up with the boys club. And a lot of women, like we'll talk about Sophia, but in her case, like uh, was accused of bullying a lot of the people below her. So it's like, she has this brand and she's supposed to be this feminist icon, but like she's really kind of just got lucky and like kind of took for granted the people who helped her along the way is allegedly what I saw online. Anyways, rant over it, but that, those are my thoughts. Um, I want to hundred percent agree. I feel like the term girl boss is really counterproductive because these are business women. And I feel like we need to be more comfortable with saying I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm do, like, I don't have to call myself anything else because that's what I am. If a man says he's a man, he doesn't have to make it sound funny or whatever. He doesn't call himself a boy boss. Boy boss. Can you imagine? I'm going to, I'm going to flip my computer. A boy boss. Right. How ridiculous. He's just a boss. He's just the boss of X company. Whereas the term girl boss basically infantilizes women yes. who are in a leadership position when they're just leaders. Why can't they just be addressed as leaders who happen to be women? And I agree. Like it was just this weird white feminism moment where it was like, the people who are the face of this were never anyone who there was no intersectionality there. It was just, you're a girl boss and here's what girl bosses look like. And it's always some blonde white lady with her hands on her hips. Didn't do <laughs> it. You know what I thought of? Yeah. Sorry. What's the book uh, when Michael Scott, the title of the book, he has like some corny book that he wants to start. This is going to kill me because I should know it. Do you know it? You guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know it's exactly. like, sometimes I manage. Sometimes I manage and he has his arms crossed on the, or somehow I manage and he has his arms crossed and he's shrugging on the front of a book. Like that's the vibes. It's so corny. It's tomato. It is very corny. Oh, he thought we were talking about Michael Scarn. Oh, no, no, no. He's not corny. <laughs> he's a legend. <laughs> but yeah, like it was just really an interesting time. Bye, Ian. Oh, our, our engineer is leaving us. He's fired. What are you talking? <laughs> fired. <laughs> um, and I think part of why the term went from being good to bad, it was used often by certain sections of the internet, um, including yeah. MLM businesses. Mm-hmm. And everyone who coined themselves as any kind of entrepreneur who was like a millennial specifically, they just had this like, it was very ingrained in like millennial culture. If you were a entrepreneur of any sort, which a lot of it was people who had MLM businesses, um, you would call yourself a girl boss or a boss babe. And I think that the term quickly lost credibility because we all know that, yes, if you have an MLM business, like you're technically your own boss, but you're not really your own boss because it's a hair away from a pyramid scheme mm-hmm. and it makes very often it is hard to succeed in these types of businesses. Um, if you want to hear more about 
MLMs, you can check out our LuLaRoe episode. Mm -hmm. And I think you really hit the nail on the head because it did transition like it boss babe or girl boss was really big jargon in a lot of different MLMs just from seeing them myself on Instagram. Yeah. So that's like another reason why I got so cringy is because like I'm a boss babe. I work from home. I support my family, but like you're really sucked into a pyramid scheme and probably like paying them money at the end of the day. So it was just like a lot of weird shady. It wasn't authentic. It was like fake wannabe. And then so Sophia, we will get into this, put a pin in this and get into it in a moment. But she basically started girl boss because she knew nasty gal was tanking and she was more at this, you know, she got to be more of a celebrity than a CEO. So it was smart on her part, but that's how it came about. Right. And yeah, like, I just think that it, it was, it had its time in the sun and then it like marched into irony pretty steadily after Mm -hmm. it became like a thing that everyone said. Um, But yeah, I think like one thing that really, really made it tank and made it funny and ironic was like the MLS. (laughs) And all the girls who are like, I sell LuLaRoe or I sell It Works and I'm a boss, babe, and I can do whatever. And it's like, but, you know, those people usually don't make any money. And if anything, they lose money doing those businesses. And you don't own your company. Like, it's not that you have to own a company to be successful or to be like a boss, but it's like putting, that's the thing about, um, oh, we could do MLM center all day. That's <laughs> like, you don't have your own business. Get the F out of here. Are you on crack? <laughs> I mean, like I do have some sympathy for people who join MLMs because I think of it as in, if you got bitten by a snake, would you oh feel <laughs> would you feel bad for getting bitten by a snake as if it was your fault or would you be upset that the snake just bit you? Both. Like yeah, both, but at some point too, you're also kind of like, well, so logically it's not your fault. Logically, yeah, logically it's not your fault. I mean, like you should know, but it's like getting internet scammed like sometimes like a lot of times they're really shitty and they're really easy to tell like that's not real but all it takes is one for it to sound just good enough for you to get got and it's like oh i can feel bad and think like oh i should have known but i mean these things are meant to get you like mlms like that are meant to make you feel like you're a boss and you've got control of your own life when in reality they, you don't. And it makes the whole term look silly, um, but it makes you look silly too. Well, it's just super predatory. So at the end of the day, if you are, are going to get anywhere in an MLM, you have to exploit the shit out of everybody around you. So yeah. even if you do make it, you're still an asshole. <laughs> do you have anything else you want to add before we uh explain just quickly how nasty gal started and like go through each year a little bit yeah i do want to talk about really quickly the unrelatableness that i think Ooh, yes. um really got the girl boss situation to be as bad and as like now it's just a joke like gaslight gatekeep girl boss is now like the the joke um, we have to make those t-shirts That'd be so freaking funny, man. Um, so other women became prominent in the quote girl boss space, such as Rachel Hollis, someone who 
wrote a lot of books about how she became like this girl boss figure, this entrepreneurial figure who was able to build her own business and while still be being relatable to everyone. Um, but I think that something that really did help tank the girl boss image is the fact that this happens to a lot of people who are internet influencers who become so wealthy and so well known. Um, mm-hmm. but they become unrelatable. The whole reason why a lot of these people who are girl bosses and like their whole thing is that I can do it, you can do it too. It's quite motivational for a while until you realize there's becomes a point where they're not just doing well because their business, they are now doing significantly better than you in ways Mm -hmm. you can't even imagine. And they're selling you this fake dream about being this successful without telling you about what privileges and help they've had. And it's Mm -hmm. a facade, like not always. And that's not all, that's not saying that it is impossible to go from rags to riches. I feel like rappers do it every day. (laughs) I feel like if you really want to, some of them them literally, I wonder how like random ass rappers have so much money. Like who can't, it's just weird. But yes, continue. I look at rappers for success stories more than I look at other people because, like, you know that there was no help for these people. Like, there's no nepotism there. There's very little. I feel like there's a little bit with Baby Keem because he's, I think he's, um, he's either Kendrick Lamar's, like, cousin or nephew or something like that. But I can't think of anyone else who was, like, born into money and became, like, a famous rapper. Like, most people are, like, poor. But yeah, I'm, I was going to say I'm sure that there is, like, a lot of nepotism. Them, but like the reason why I laugh and I like I love hip hop I love rap but like recently like all the SoundCloud like mumble rap that's what makes me laugh because I'm like you might not be dumb as rocks but like you sound dumb as rocks so it's just like funny for these people to go from like so poor to so rich so quickly right but I'm like okay that that's a real success story from like nothing yes. something whereas if you and I do this all the time now whenever I start to like scroll down LinkedIn or like go on Instagram and I'm like oh shit like people are doing better than me I'm kind of like okay wait and we'll see this with um with Sophia there are a lot of people who you guys might see who you think are doing so much better than you and whatever but you need to stop and realize that there's a very very good chance that these people have had certain privileges and certain connections just inherently just based on who their parents are based on who they happen to like have gone to school with or met and that applies to everyone it can apply to me and sandy even yeah i've yeah for sure and like everyone uh, oh i also want to say um for anybody who's interested in creative entrepreneurship the podcast, How I Built This, is amazing. And they always interview entrepreneurs and kind of walk through their journeys. And at the end of every episode, they ask how much of your success was grit, hard work, whatever you want to call it, and how much was luck. And it's very funny because every single entrepreneur leans toward hard work. And of course, you work your ass off. And of course, you put in your blood, sweat, and tears. So, like, of course, you want to say that it was you. At the end of the day, you can put in all the work humanly possible. And if you don't have a stroke of luck, you won't get anywhere. Like you have to have the combo. So that's why it it rubs me the wrong way when people are like, oh, I did this. You can do it too. I'm a girl boss. You can do it too. It's like, you had luck along the way. You had somebody help you along the way. 
And it's so much healthier to admit that and be real about it than be than have this facade. Right. Like it just it paints this perfect image of this person just worked really hard and they got to where they are. And like you can do it too if you just happen to work hard enough. Um, and it just became a it became a like motivator for the capitalist machine and i think we'll definitely get into this a lot more but that's like pretty much what we're focusing on the fact that like this was this era like in the 2010s like the mid to late 2010s up up until the pandemic i honestly want to say is like when it finally like died off and there was like a hard stop to it Mm -hmm. it just fed this capitalist machine that promoted overworking and unrealistic ideals without considering the fact that the people who you might have idolized who toted this title probably had a lot of help probably had a lot of privileges even just having like Sophia like she in her book we'll get into it but like in her book she even talks about how she was in like uh, her mom was calling her and wanting her to go back to college and I'm like to even have an option to say you want to go back to college or not kind of very quietly says this person had a choice in their life and most people just do not. So even that, like I'm trying to like PSA tell all of you guys, just try to realize that everyone has a different journey and yours might be different than other people. And that does not mean you are not working hard. You're probably working as hard as you physically can right now. And that is more than good enough. It's not saying you shouldn't continue and you shouldn't strive for more. But just realize that, like, this girl boss shit is fake and it's always been fake. It's like social media where it's a highlight reel, essentially. 100%. Um, In the book, they gloss over tons of stuff. And we'll get into it. But, like, I just want you guys to know that, like, it just sounds too, too good to be true because it is. So Nasty Gals started in 2006. I, my first memory was probably in like 2011. I remember I was in my high school library class and some girl was shopping online because like who did work in library class? And she was showing me these bandeau, very 2011 dresses. And I was like, what are these? I've never seen anything like this before. And I remember I bought one like that summer and I really liked it, but okay. Back to 2006 in 2012, it was named the fastest growing retailer by Inc. Magazine. Um, A lot of people know, but it started with Sophia as an eBay store. She was reselling uh, clothing from vintage clothing from thrift shops. She used MySpace a lot in the early days. She has mentioned that social media was a big part in her growth. Um, In 2008 to 2009, she got off eBay, started her own website. In 2009, they acquired two warehouse spaces, which is an important point when we go back to the failure. Um, in 2010, they moved to LA. 2011, they had 24 million of revenue, which marked an 11,200% three-year growth rate, which is just insane. This is also an important point, thinking about failure. So in early 2012, they received 9 million in investments, and then they received another 40 million in August from Index Ventures Venture Capital. In 2012, they had employed, employed, oh my gosh, sorry, (laughs) 110 people, and they had an additional distribution center in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. 2014, they opened their first brick and mortar store in LA. This is, I have this in bold, 2014, 
Nasty Gal founder Emma Russo published book Girl Boss, hashtag Girl Boss. And after the Girl Boss release, she launched the Girl Boss Foundation, which is allegedly to inspire women to take their careers into their own hands. In 2015, Cherie Watterson takes over as CEO of Nasty Gal and Sophia stays on the board. So this, you can talk about this a little bit later, Ashley, but this is where she like sees Nasty Gals going downhill. So she's kind of stepping out, making her own brand, becoming a celebrity over a CEO. Um, in 2016, they filed for bankruptcy. Boohoo Group, which is British owned, announced in 2017 that they'd purchased Nasty Gal for $20 million. This is insane because in 2015 alone, Nasty Gal made $300 million in sales. To mess up that badly... And only be able to sell it for twenty million after is like unreal. I mean, I know they went through bankruptcy, but it's just mind blowing. Like they could have gone so far with this, and it just tanked. And when it tanked before Boohoo bought it, the entire site and stock were all seventy percent off. And all the customers who bought the seventy percent off were saying they were getting charged full price. There were no customer service sale reps available. Nobody was responding to their emails for help. So when they went out, it was a total shit show. Thoughts, questions, concerns, Ashley? I want to say I feel like looking at this business as a whole, it feels like this is a case of going too fast. Just everything came too soon. And I think that what really makes a lot of sense, and I know people are not going to like me for this, but Sophia is not a business person. And that is not to say that you cannot become a business person. And I'm sure that she is an incredible business person now. But Mm -hmm. at the time when she was growing, it sounds to me from everything in her book that she was doing her absolute best, but she did not have the knowledge to um, keep this business, to keep this business running the way that it should. And every, like she reached out, like in the book, she talks about reaching out and going places and trying to get as many people to invest and like shake as many hands, rub as many shoulders as she could. But she didn't talk about like the business model and what she was doing and all this stuff. Like they don't have a lot of the stuff that keeps places like a TJ Maxx and like mm-hmm. an anthropology and free people and made, all places like those that we all know are like mall staples. There's a reason why like, they have gigantic chains of command. It mm-hmm. sounds like she just didn't have, she didn't have it as well thought out as you need to have a company this large. Sometimes it's okay to stay smaller for longer. So when you do make a larger or a bigger step, you do it with complete confidence and not just running off of like, well, it did really well this time. So I'm going to just keep going. You know what I mean? We have the nail on the head. So when I talk about why it failed, the first thing I have is just overgrowth. She had these really aggressive venture capitalists that obviously are going to want the return on their money. But, you know, when you have venture capital, you usually have a timeline. It was like they were trying to turn it around immediately rather than taking the time, like you said, to set everything up with all the layers and all the people and all the processes so this is an article from Brio5, B-R-I-O-F-I-V-E. It was amazing. It really helped me understand 
everything that happened. I'm going to lay it out for you guys. So overfunding Nasty Gal is basically what killed it. It was too many players in a small game. There were a lot of high volume investors that decided to invest and grow the business as fastly as they could. And they really treated it like a tech startup. And when you have a physical product, a lot of entrepreneurs who haven't actually worked in fashion or design mess up because they don't understand the manufacturing cycle. Um, Inc. Magazine states that Nasty Gal today should be a thriving company if they hadn't been caught up in the venture capital finance hyper growth mode. Steadily, Nasty Gal could have grown to over $100 million in profitable revenue with no venture company money at all. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It is and it isn't because I feel like I've said this for a long time since I graduated college with a fashion degree. There are so many times I'm kind of looking at people up and down like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand manufacturing. You don't even understand how to create this garment that you're just toting around. And to me, it sounds like, like I said, she's someone who didn't have the education. She didn't have the knowledge because like in the book, she says, well, we decided we wanted to start making our own things. And that's so much easier said than done. I'm right. I'm about to get into that too. Okay. Right. Like she said that and I was like, you just said it like it was this easy peasy little thing as if it doesn't take a million years. And I think that even if if you are someone who works in product development at all, you would know that that is not easy. And it just made it sound a little bit like arrogant to me. I was kind of like, you don't, you at least the way you put it, the way you worded it in the book. And I know she probably didn't write the book. It's probably... Um, ghostwriter yeah a memoir with a ghostwriter which you know what no shame everyone does that but I was kind of like you guys are acting like it's just some easy peasy little we're gonna make our own stuff too to keep up with demand that is a good idea but you truly have to understand what you're doing time to implement it you don't just roll it out like you have you need a game plan you need people who know what they're doing you need to plan seasons ahead it's not something that you can just hop on with that tech startup mentality like we're just gonna do it and figure it out like it needs to be well thought out because you will end up with so much product if you don't execute it properly it's honestly reminding me um of oh my gosh what's her name the woman who did theranos elizabeth oh my god one second i know her i like i'm so obsessed with this elizabeth holmes who did the Theranos um, thing. And it felt like she was obsessed with the look and the idea of having this successful company and having it be so like revolutionary and being like on the 30 under 30 list, which Sophia was. I think that they bought into their own hype and that was eminently their downfall. Um, And also it's worth noting, and in my creative entrepreneurship class, I'm going to reference that a lot because that's the... Uh, foundation of my business knowledge at this point in my life. But there were a lot of case studies when small fashion companies are forced to grow rapidly, they just die out. Or if like you're doing like B2C and you don't have any stores, like it it works really well at first and then it slows down and dies. Um, Some examples of this were like, not necessarily the B2C thing, but Companies growing rapidly and then shutting down. We have American Apparel, Pacific Sunwear, stuff like that. It just works until it doesn't. Can you just explain what B2C is? Oh, brand to consumer. Okay. So that's when you're just selling on your website and you don't have a store or like you don't have it in Macy's or Nordstrom. Like you're just, um, and like Glossier, 
you, that's like Glossier has had a whole thing because they're a millennial brand, but they've been doing B2C and like they do have their pop-ups, but they've been toying with the idea of going in Sephora because when you're B2C, like there's only so far you can go essentially. It like skyrockets and then it plateaus and then you can crash. So again, that's not the case with every single business, but that's worth noting that like they only had one store towards the end of things. Thank you for that. You are welcome. <laughs> I'm the business <laughs> bitch like Kelly Kapoor. <laughs> Continue okay. business bitch. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So again, guys, this is Bryo5. This is uh, things I read from their article. Another point is when you lose the fundamentals of your business, you lose customers. Um, meaning that when your quality drops or things change drastically, it's hard to maintain. And if you're in a period of supersonic growth that can really mess things up. So as Nasdaq grew and received more funding, as you were talking about Ashley, Sophia decided to start an in-house line. The reasoning for this being that the brand was primarily working with wholesalers. So when they worked with the wholesalers and bought the clothes from them, their profit margin was 45%. I want to say that that is a really good profit margin. Any business owner who has that is in a good spot. When I was in creative entrepreneurship class and we created our own business plans, we were aiming for like 20% to start. So 45 is great. If that's your average, you're already crushing it. Um, starting their own line would help Nasty Gals margins become 70%. I just want to point out they're in fast fashion. How the hell are they making a 70% profit margin? Like that is very alarming to pay the designers, to pay the workforce, to pay for the materials. Ashley and I talk about this all the time, but you know, there's somebody's not getting paid. They're stealing at some point in the production process because that their prices aren't that high to begin with, right? So if they have a hundred dollar pair of pants and they're profiting $70, it does not cost $30 to design, produce, and manufacture a pair of pants. Right. Like I always say, I learned this in my sustainability science class when I was in school. The cost doesn't go away. It's not actually cheaper. The cost is being outsourced to someone else. You're not paying it, but someone else is. And that is in the form of wage theft, usually. That's actually, FYI, I learned this recently and it it made sense. And I was upset that I didn't realize it sooner. But a lot of the crime that is committed in America is not murders and kidnappings and all the things mm-hmm. we talk about on the news. The vast mm-hmm. majority of crime is simply wage theft. Everybody, check your paychecks because your job probably is trying to steal from you. Ugh. That occurs in the apparel business so much at every level. So, you know, it makes sense. That tracks. <laughs> Yeah. And that's also, if you go on their website, they have a sale going all the time. It is always 50% off or 60% off. And if you shop at Nasty Girl and you're not getting that sale, you're getting robbed. But the reason why they can do that is because their profit margins are so high and they're still making a nice profit margin, even off the sale, because their clothes are so cheap. And we have talked in our sustainability episode. It was, I believe, episode three we ever did. We talked about the website, Good On You. 
that rates every single fashion brand under the sun. Nasty Gal has a horrible rating. It's rated as unethical. There's not really any information. Um, And this is currently as Boohoo owns them, but I assume it's always been the same. Let's be real. So I have a few things from Nasty Gal, but I honestly don't think I'll shop there anymore because it's just like a lot of shady, you know? I get that. Honestly, when I was in high school and I read the book and I was really enamored with the idea of this, not just this business, but with Sophia as a role model, I wanted to shop at Nasty Gal. And then I came to the very sobering realization that they would not make anything that would fit me. And now Mm -hmm. being 24, looking back when I was like 16, I wish I looked like I did when I was 16. I always thought I was such a big person, but I really wasn't. And Mm -hmm. I was like, not only do they not make like plus size clothes, I didn't even fit in plus size clothes. I'm too small for that. I still am. But they didn't even make things past a size like eight or sometimes a six. So I was like, literally nobody can shop here. That's part of why I stopped liking it as much because I was like, why would I get so excited about this thing? Like, yeah, the clothes are cute, but they don't make things that I could ever wear. And then I was like, oh, well, it's vintage. Like, you know, and people were smaller when a lot of these things were being made. So that's not really anyone's fault. But then as they became a larger business, they were producing their own clothes. And I was like, why are you guys still making such small sizes? Nothing's going to fit. Yeah. And even I have stuff from there and I've had to get like larges. So, I mean, I don't think like it's just not inclusive because it's for like teeny, teeny, like uh, preteens. And that's what a lot of fast fashion is and whatever. It's a whole conversation. But yeah, it's just but it's not even just the sizing. It's like the quality isn't good. Um, It just doesn't hang right. If you have like an ounce of fat and that's probably why they make the clothes so small because they know it won't be flattering, but it's just anyways. So in 2015, they get their first 500,000 square foot warehouse in Kentucky. That is unusual for a retail company because they usually have a third party provider for their note in their demise. So that is an important point when we talk about why things went downhill for them. Um, The manufacturing took a wrong turn. The company had to use factories that produced garments that weren't up to company standards. The pieces of clothing didn't look as good as they were styled online. And a lot of orders started being returned. And a lot of fast fashion companies throw out return clothes. Um, So, you know, this company started on selling high name vintage brands like Chanel and all of a sudden, there are these like crappy garments going through. So we're going to talk a little bit about manufacturing and give an example so we can like understand it a little bit better. Um, so a big reason for the Nasty Gal bankruptcy is um, in that goods and apparel, extremely fast growth may be tempting, but it has a very small margin of error because of seasonality. So let's pretend we're talking about Target, right? If Target orders a million units of jackets for the winter, a normal growth rate would assume that you have manufacturers producing around late summer, so they'd be ready by winter. And, you know, it's not impossible for it to start in October or November to get ready for December, but that would cause an immense strain on your business 
And it would need to be a business who has scaled to that capability. Like Target's been around for tons of years. We get TJ Maxx, like whatever. Those companies can do it because they have the systems in place. If you have a company where you have a hundred people and you're scrambling, things are going to slip through the cracks if you can even get it done. Another thing to think about, if you're producing in October or November to fulfill purchase orders of a million units, you need a huge facility to manufacture your goods. So the problem is, if you have a facility capable of producing this many units, you will need to maintain the purchase orders from the same size. So let's say you do a million units a month to cover a purchase order, and then the next month you only have 500,000 you will be stuck paying for that machinery and the workers, or you can lay those workers off, but in the future, you're going to have to retrain and rehire them. And while that it probably the manufacturer didn't uh, affect them for that, the warehouse, they you have to think they own their own 500,000 square foot warehouse. They're owning like other warehouses. They're scaling way too big. So they're getting these huge orders. And then the next month when it drops, they're wasting that machinery, they're wasting that workforce. And that is a huge hit for a new business. So I 100% agree. This makes so much sense, especially because I work in product development and like a big part of my job is like handling and speaking to like vendors and working in that production process. And like, yeah, you can have things for winter done by like late summer, but oftentimes large companies to like a target scale, they do it like two years in advance, a year in advance. Mm-hmm. Like, and, like they go like the second that they're done with one year, the year in advance, they do it again. Like it's a yes. revolving door. It's never ending. They keep going as humanly as far as they can go. There is no, there is no down period. There is no like stopping. So like I said it before, it just sounds like she doesn't really understand those things. And like, yeah, she probably had the money to hire people to help her and everything. But like th- those companies, they are they have a lot of people making sure things are going correctly. And like mm-hmm. even in my job, sometimes like if things don't go correctly, you need to have a lot of different people handling the manufacturing process, speaking to the manufacturers directly, speaking to factories, like the money it costs just to ship things from other places to get them here, to make sure there's like checks and balances in place. Mm -hmm. So things do not go awry because they can go awry very, very quickly with just one thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you're doing like constant quality checks on like small things. Like You work for a company where these systems are in place. And again, and I want to also reiterate, like, it's not just on her, it's on everybody. But if you're the CEO and you're new to business, it is on you to hire people who know what they're doing. So if you don't know, the people who you hire need to know. Exactly. They didn't have enough people to pull it together. Like if they had gone slow, they could have created an amazing process and could have like crushed it and created probably a really high quality product. But they, it was like that venture capital tech startup, go, 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 girl boss culture. And it just tanked. Right. Like, and I think that this is honestly a really good lesson for your life, guys. Slow sometimes is better. I feel like 
if it takes time for you to really like lean in and to hone your craft and to gain as much knowledge and experience as possible, that is more valuable than the big flashy girl boss name and having everyone know who you are. Because would you rather longevity or to be, or to have everything right now and lose it? Yeah, 1000%. And again, established retail, physical retail stores usually have very reliable seasonality. So they usually can order based upon last year's numbers for smaller boutiques and online stores. You are basically ordering, hoping that your store will sell an equal or greater than amount than the subsequent business period. Otherwise, you will have overproduced and you'll be holding on to inventory and that's bad. So that is a little bit, that was an amazing article. Like that was just research I did. I did not come up with that myself. (laughs) I am reiterating it to you guys, but I think that that like really broke it down and just explains how complex it is and how many layers there are. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a really, really good um, explanation of everything. And I think that um, I feel like, even me working now in the production cycle, like there's stuff I learn every day. And honestly, that taught me a lot of things um, that I didn't like put all the pieces together, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And other than that, I will, I will turn it over to you to talk about the book, but there were a few controversies, which I'm sure will tie in with the book. We can circle back. There, you know, there were lawsuits against Nasty Girl of a fire of allegedly firing four employees because of pregnancy. There was one who I think was the CFO, if I'm remembering correctly, who was awaiting an organ transplant and they fired her and let her coverage lapse. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of employees who have come forward, but he remained anonymous. Some people have said it was a toxic work environment. There are bad glass door reviews. Um, Boohoo Group has been accused of modern slavery as recently as 2020 by the Sunday Times. And towards the end of Sophia's reign, there were just a lot of layoffs and culture declines. This was quoted by someone internally in the company. She presents herself as someone who is aspirational for women. Of course, her success is noteworthy, but if you read her many articles and interviews, she rarely acknowledges the people who helped her build the company, instead credits the success of her hard work, long hours, paying models with burgers, etc. I'm not saying those things aren't true, but the CEOs and managers that inspire are the ones who shine the light on the team around them instead of desperately taking ownership of every win. Yeah. So yeah, that is what I have for some nasty gal controversies. I'm very excited to see what you learned from her book. So like I mentioned before, I did want this book when I was younger. I read this when I was in high school, probably like 14, like 15, 16. Um, And I really liked the book when I was younger. I found it to be very motivational um I felt like it really kept me as like someone who always wanted to be an entrepreneur and always wanted mm-hmm. to work in fashion it was very inspiring to me as a young person but I found that it would be I thought that it'd be a really good idea to reread this now as an adult and see what it is about it that like 
was both inspiring to me and everyone else, but like things like red flags, you know? Yes. Yes. So I would say that there was still a lot of really positive messaging in the book. Um, I have a few quotes here where she says things like, you have to kick people out of your head as forcefully as you would kick them out of your house. That's fair, right? Like people can get in your head, kind of tell you that you're not doing very well. And sometimes they're helpful, but sometimes a lot of the time people are just haters. So, you know, why not? A lot of the time. A lot of times. Yeah. A lot of times people will tell you things that you think are supposed to be helpful and telling you like, oh no, don't fly too too close to the sun. But sometimes they're just being haters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a secret, there are secret opportunities hidden inside every failure. Also good messaging, ways to find. That's a really good one. Um, And this is one that I always remembered money looks better in the bank than on your feet. And in this section, she was talking about like, you know, don't blow all your money now that you're doing really well. Like don't blow all your money on flashy, flashy stuff. And I was like, solid advice. I feel like people often have like an issue with spending money even before they get it because they have it in mind. <laughs> well, oh, I'm going to make it back. Well, yeah. What happens if you don't? Yep. That's a good one. And I'm glad you're saying good things too, because I don't want to all be negative or slanderous. Like, like we're going to spill the tea, like we said, but I'm very glad you're pointing out positive things she said too. Yeah. I want to highlight the fact that there is no way that she was ever able to be this successful without there being a lot of good in what Mm -hmm. she was doing and the messaging. It was quite positive. However, I think that Part of the girl boss and toxic productivity collapse um, happened like because of COVID. And I think like it was really interesting to re-examine this book and like the era we were living in pre-COVID. It was like insane some of the stuff she was saying people should do. She said she ate, slept, and breathed her business and she didn't do anything else and she was obsessed with it. And I was like, okay, cool, but that's not healthy. That's so toxic because you need, you can't perform at your best if you haven't had a break. Like you need to go for a walk, do some yoga, have a healthy meal. Like that, those times that clear your head are what oftentimes produces your best ideas. You can't just go, go, go. Right. Like she talks about basically, and she glosses over it, but says like, I just worked so hard. I, I ate, slept and breathed my business. I was obsessed with it. I was addicted to it. It was like a serotonin hit every time someone would buy stuff and I was growing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really good. But if you stop and take a look at it and think about like me in my adult brain now is like, that sounds exhausting. And even me as an entrepreneur, it's like, yes, there is a lot of eat, sleeping and breathing what you do but you need balance. One thing that I felt like was really um, glaring was to be given the opportunity or the choice to do this to, like she mentioned, like I mentioned before, like she said, my mom was begging me to go back to school. And I was like, just kind of living as like a hippie. And I was, you know, really about like, screw the man. Um, And I was kind of like, to have the choice to do that is crazy. I also want to say, I believe Bethany Frankel was the one who said, if you're not getting it done in 40 hours, you're not being efficient enough. 
So hire some other people, figure it out. You don't need to be working more than, let's be generous. Let's say 50 hours a week. Okay. Like if there is, you're, there's a problem and you're not being efficient. Right. I agree 100%. And I love Bethany Finkel because I feel like she is, she's a very good businesswoman, but she is very realistic and she does not sugarcoat anything. She's being honest. And I feel like that is so truthful. And I feel like you'll come across a lot of other entrepreneurs who are in the same successful um, position as her, who will tell you, oh, all I ever did was work, work, work. I didn't care about anything else. And it's like, well, you should. That's weird to not care. It's weird. It turns you into a weird monster. It's the only thing you have going for you. And guess what? Entrepreneurship is a wild ride, but it usually ends at some point. You usually sell, take a step back, go on the board. Like you don't want to be left with nothing after like you need to have a life. You need to have your own life. You need to treat it like a job, show up, go to work and have time where you turn it off. Of course, it's your baby and you're going to care more than a regular business, but it's just feels like a recipe for disaster to be that obsessed with it right oh my gosh and you know what I feel like it it almost came off and I know it's gonna sound harsh but almost a little bit culty yeah no I totally get that vibe from it and I would even go as far as saying this felt like a capitalist manifesto like this raising raising it that was so funny They were praising this in a way. And like there was a um an excerpt, I feel like it was a couple of chapters, like two or three chapters, um, with Christina Ferrucci. She is the buying director of Nasty Gal. And she mm-hmm. had been with the business forever, forever since its beginnings. And she got to have her own couple of chapters where she talks about like how she was just like um, Sophia and very like, screw the man. I don't want to work for someone else. I want to make make my own life and live kind of like an artist, a free thinker. But then she was like, I would have never thought that not only would I like really benefit from a capitalist system, but like I would really champion it. And it really helped me like do all these things that I want to do. And I was like, you know what this really sounds like? It sounds like these white women didn't like the fact they felt like outsiders and outcasts because of their gender, because they're women. Mm -hmm. And the second that they were able to find an in that works in this system, they were all for it. And it's so, why does it so have to be zero to a hundred? Like, why do you have to be free spirit, hippy dippy? to going to working a hundred hours a week. That makes no sense. It doesn't. And it's kind of like, okay, two things can be true at once. Like you can still, you can benefit because that is the system we live in. We do have a capitalist system. We live in America, but it feels so much like, I think it's part of why the girl boss culture died. It was quite disingenuous. It wasn't true feminism and like wanting equality. It was just wanting to be seen like a man and work within the system rather than create a new system. Yeah, for sure. Oh, it's annoying because it's such a swing and a miss. Like it's so close. She started this really funky, cool brand, but it, it just at the end of the day, like you just were like everybody else. Yeah. It just feels like the whole, like as a whole, it felt like they wanted the name the um, fame and the excitement of having a brand, but they lost, like you said, 
they lost their um, individuality and they lost their like identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that they just got consumed by this like capitalist praising that they did in this book. Like I like didn't finish the whole thing as my adult reading because I was like, I can't handle any more of this. This That's feels bad. very strange. It was kind of culty to me. Like, like I said, there was lots of good quotes in there. Lots of things that you can totally live by. But it definitely got kind of weird. And I was like, why? You guys are like praising this thing when it feels like you only didn't like it because it didn't work for you, not because you truly had any real criticisms of the the systems that are in that are um currently at work, if that makes sense. And it just felt like once you were able to become successful within this system that you claimed to hate and you didn't want to to participate in all your morals flew out of the window Mm. and it's not like I'm not saying that you can't change and you can't grow but it did kind of feel like oh so you don't you didn't really care that it was bad you just cared that it was bad for you which I think is like that horror of like kind of gross icky feeling of that white feminism Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that the thing, this this system is bad. It's that, well, it doesn't work for me, so I don't like it. But the second it works for me, I'm all good. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, and I don't know. And again, she really got lucky and she turned, she knew in 2014, 2015, when it was heading down, she knew she wrote it as far as she could. She stepped out of the way and that was very smart, but that's yeah. why she made her book. And she was more of an influencer and a celebrity than a CEO. And even her, the people who worked at the company said that that was part of an issue is like, she stepped out and wasn't really present with like the products and the business model because she was so into being known as this boss girl, girl boss CEO. So like, that's interesting too, that that in, in itself affected the business. Well, yeah, because I feel like with a company that was still just so young, I think we can't ex- we can't express and emphasize enough how young this company was. They weren't around for very long before they shot to start it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that does mean that they don't have a lot of like established systems in place to keep everything running smoothly. And I feel like when a company is very young like this, the people who founded it still need to be very hands-on and I think that she was only really hands-on for like a couple of years and then she just stopped and didn't hire enough people to um take her place and break up her job and I think that the reason why that partially could be a thing is because um the more people you hire the less money you make Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the thing that's infuriating is they had so much venture capital. They had $50 million. So they could have hired a lot more people. And if you think about it too, so this started on um, eBay in 2006. So this is that in some instance, you can even, um, I don't even know if I would consider that the start, you know what I mean? Being on eBay, but then they started their own website in 2008 to 2009 2012, they get a ton of venture capital. 2016, they're filing for bankruptcy. They had 10 years from the MySpace eBay era to raising 
50 million plus of venture capital to go into bankruptcy. Like that is insane. It is. And I feel like it, it is young for a company, but it's not so young that it's like, oh, you crashed and burned in like two years. Yeah. I think that she really just got so excited. Like a lot of people do when they come into money and they didn't have like a ton, even if they had privileges, but they never were like millionaires. Like basketball Mm -hmm. players do it. Rappers do it. Like you get a lot of money and you ball out for a while. And I think Mm -hmm. that she just, she just bought into her own hype so much and without having the drive to be a, um, she had didn't have the drive to be a creative. She had the drive to make money. And we've said yeah. this about like in our personal conversations about like how it seems that a lot of even like the musicians that we liked like would rap because like they they found like a um an avenue to get the fame and the money that they crave, but not so much that they cared a lot about the craft. So yeah. It's like, I think that's really what's a downfall. And like, it sucks to be like, oh, it's all her fault. But like, I think that what her message was very true. If you want something hard enough, you, if you want it bad enough, you can make it happen. But I think that the thing she wanted didn't actually align with owning a clothing company and being creative and being a designer. It aligned more with being a famous person who makes a lot of money, who has like something reputable, something respectable, um, and like has like quirky little feminist, like I'm so cool and you're so cool too vibe, but didn't really mm-hmm. want to continue how tough it really is to run a, a business. Yeah, it was very, that was good because it was very dense, pack, packing a punch. Um, I am exhausted because I worked all day. So, and so did Ashley. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any other questions, comments, concerns about nasty gal, we would be more than happy to talk about it a little bit in another episode. If you have any other brands, celebrities, um, fashion trends or general inquiries like we will take it and run with it we are so eager to have requests and yeah thank you so much if you've stayed with us this far throughout the episode i love you i love you so much um you're a special busy little bitch just like us if you (laughs) listen to our last episode you know what i mean oh my god i'm gonna fall asleep oh my god yeah it's currently 10 o'clock on a Friday. Um, but 10 we're 20. Try- yes, we're trying. We're working so hard for you guys. We want this um, next coming year of episodes to be the best yet. So we're working nights. We are, we're working we nights for you. We are. We are girl bossing. Gaslight, uh. <laughs> girl boss. If you made it to this point in the episode, okay, I'm going to say a month to listen to this. So it's September 9th. If you are listening to this by October 9th, if I we will send you a free shirt that says Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss if you recommend the podcast to five of your friends. Free oh my t-shirt. God, literally, wait. You guys need to send us, like DM us screenshots of you recommending our podcast to your friends and we'll literally send you a free shirt. Yeah, one month, 
free shirt. We'll make it for you. We have mad cricket skills. You don't even know. You have we, no idea. <laughs> we will make you a ready to rage shirt for free, a free t-shirt. We'll send it to you for free. Everything. All you have to do is send it to five friends in the next month. And if you don't have five friends, that's okay. You can send it to like any friends. Yeah. You can send it to randos. I don't care. Just five people. DM five people who you don't even know. DM famous people. Tell them to listen to our show. Thank you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Ready to Rage. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ready to Rage Podcast. Send us an email with your thoughts on the episode. Anything you'd like us to include in the future at Ready to Rage Podcast at gmail.com. You can also donate on Patreon at Ready to Rage. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you. Thank you. Rage.